one of my best, best, best friends in the world is Brian Canlis of Canlis Restaurant. No kidding. Yeah. You know, those guys are amazing. I don't know if you know this, but my wife and I got married there. No freaking way. Yeah, we rented the whole thing out. We got married upstairs. I mean, look, it's my wedding, so I'm not very objective about this, but it was remarkable. And one of the things I know was kind of a big deal for them, too, because, you know, we had the restaurant all decorated. They kept those decorations up for a year after. <laughs> I was, so they got a good deal out of this thing. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. I'm really excited about this episode and really what's going to end up being a two-part series, and we're calling this Creating a Culture of Service. Now, this hits super close to home for me and everyone at Nordstrom because it's really the defining thing we focus on to create differentiation and a reason for being, frankly. You know, I, I can remember my dad talking about service always saying, you know, it's a really fragile thing. And if we're not really leaning into it all the time, if it's not top of the list, if it's something we take for granted, we're probably getting worse at it. So people ask me all the time what I enjoy about doing the podcast. And what I almost always say is that I learned something. If you're willing to be curious and listen to people, you learn stuff because we're on a journey here. And frankly, we're only as good as the customer we just served heck two minutes ago or the most recent experience a customer had with us it's nice that we've got a nice reputation for a legacy of service but our whole battle is to be relevant and keep raising the bar that's really what we're in pursuit of all the time and what got me really excited about this episode was talking to Will Gadara, someone I know had sent me a link to a TED Talk he did. He's a remarkably successful restaurateur, given the fact top-rated restaurant, Michelin three stars at one point actually rated the number one restaurant in the world. Now that in and of itself is incredible. But that's not really what he goes deep on when he talked at his TED Talk and what we talked about this inter interview. What he's talking about here is the service part of it and that over time, just being a highly regarded restaurant was not really the end game for Will. What he was trying to do was actually elevate a customer's experience, not just through the food, but through the whole end-to-end -end experience that happens when you are in a restaurant. It was really fun for me to talk to Will, and it didn't take long for us to have a shared set of experiences and approach to how we think about business. And, you know, he's got that TED Talk, but he's also written a book, and he was really nice. He sent me an autographed copy of his book called Unreasonable Hospitality, The Remarkable Power of Giving People More Than They Expect. So we're leading off with this mini-series of creating a culture of service with Will Gadara because I think he sets the bar high of what we're talking about here when we talk about what good service looks like. So this morning, I'm super happy to have Will Gadara as our guest. And you may ask, well, who's Will Gadara? Because I didn't know who Will was either until someone sent me a video of a TED Talk that he did called The Secret Ingredients of Great Hospitality. And 
we're always trying to be on the lookout for great examples of service and how that's applied in other companies and how to create culture. Because, you know, sometimes we live within our own little bubble and we don't always get that input. So I, I found myself watching this, Will, and just like furiously taking a bunch of notes because so much <laughs> of what you talked about there had application. So anyway, nice job in that TED Talk and thanks for being on the Nordy Pod. Oh, thanks, man. I'm, I'm super excited to be with you today. Well, maybe you can start by talking a little bit about your background and what got you this place of being a successful restaurateur and then actually having the platform to be able to do these kinds of things, right? And talk about something that really transcends just that specific restaurant. So can you talk a little bit about your background? Yeah. So I'm, I mean, I grew up in the restaurant business. My dad was a lifelong restaurateur. He used to be the president of a company called Restaurant Associates in New York. Restaurant Associates, for those who haven't heard of it, is responsible for some of the great restaurants in America. Back in the day, they they really innovated what it looked like to have an American fine dining restaurant where it didn't need to be French with a la or a la at the beginning <laughs> of it. And, yes. um, the founder of Restaurant Associates, Joe Baum, was responsible for restaurants like uh, the Four Seasons, Windows on the World, the Rainbow Room, and and many more. And Honestly, it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do in my life. I was and continue to be enamored with my dad. He's my hero, my best friend, my mentor. And probably didn't matter what, what he did, whatever it was, I was going to want to do that. And it just so happened that the thing he did ended up being something I fell in love with. So was that approach then based on hospitality and restaurant management or did it come from the place of food itself? No, you know, I never wanted to be a chef. I which is interesting because so many people want to be chefs these days. I was always enamored by the dining room. I loved walking through the dining rooms of his restaurants, the electricity, the the controlled chaos. And perhaps most importantly, I've just always loved being the guy throwing the party. Yeah, it's we, we definitely got this thing in common about uh, our dads. My, my dad, obviously, I, I don't think in the moment I thought about it so much as being inspired and following in his footsteps. But clearly over time, I could tell how that shaped me and it, and it got me uh, engaged and interested in, in being in the retail business. I mean, you talked about as a young person going, well, I really want to be in the restaurant business. People assume all the time that I was attached to this, like, well, I'm sure it was inevitable. You know, yeah. There's this family thing is what you do. But I don't know about you, but for me, as a teenager stuff growing up, I didn't sit there and think about my lifelong dream is to be a retailer. I mean, I wanted to be a pro basketball player or something. It was like <laughs> when reality kind of comes crashing down, I, I it, did, it did have a big impact. I mean, that my dad seemed to enjoy his life and work was integrated to his whole life, but not in a way that dominated it, but it kind of helped inform the way he just approach everything in his in his life and so yeah that had a big impact on me too you know, i mean my my last name wasn't on the door so i didn't wear it as an identity growing up like i'd imagine you do did so i had less to kind of push back against but when i was 12 and and literally i have a a to-do list that my dad gave me about 10 years ago that he helped me write when i was 12 years old and there were three things on it. I wanted to open my own restaurant in New York City. I wanted to go to Cornell to the hospitality program. And I wanted to marry Cindy Crawford. Those were my three <laughs> things on that list. That's and a pretty I, good I list. Two out of three. That's and on the, the third, I think I did even better. But really where it happened, and this is a like the origin story. My dad, for my 12th birthday, took me to the Four Seasons for dinner. And there's that quote by Maya Angelou. People forget what you say. They'll forget what you do. But they'll never forget how you made them feel. And I don't remember much about that meal, 
but I do remember being across from this table alongside the pool in the middle of that dining room with my dad and how for a few hours, it felt like everything else in the world ceased to exist. That dinner for 12 year old me put the world on pause. And what I felt that night, which I obviously didn't articulate this way then, but was that they had created this little magical world in a world that needed more magic. All that was left for those three hours was me and my pops eating dinner and the team there created the conditions where we were closer at the end of that meal than we were in the beginning. And after that meal, I was hooked. Not only did I want to be like my dad, but that dinner just, I was enchanted by the idea of what I could create. That's a great story. So tell us a little bit about your journey to go from having this interest in following your, your dad's footsteps to ending up at a restaurant that's considered one of the best restaurants in the world. Hmm. So from an early age, my dad played a pretty important role in helping me kind of pursue the path. You know, I worked in restaurants in high school, just random places, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. I was a soda jerk at Baskin Robbins, um, all that. But ultimately that took me to the ho the hotel school at Cornell University. And while I was there, I really tried to go work at, you know, the best restaurants in America. I spent time at Spago, Wolfgang Puck's restaurant, Tribeca Grill, and ultimately landed with Danny Meyer. You know, at the time there were so many celebrated chefs, but not very many celebrated restaurateurs. And he was the guy. His partner came and spoke at one of my classes at Cornell. And I was immediately just inspired by the way that they pursued what was happening in the dining room with the same intensity as so many other companies were pursuing what was happening in the kitchen. I worked with Danny at a restaurant called Tabla for a while, then left the company to go work for Restaurant Associates, which my dad had left at that point. But to make sure that I didn't fall in love with the first company I worked for, but that got to see how a different, bigger restaurant company pursued their culture. I kind of defined the two as one being restaurant smart and the other one being corporate smart and how they prioritize decisions and where their highest paid people are. Learned a lot at Restaurant Associates. It was kind of like a master's degree in how to run the business side of the restaurant business. But ultimately ended up back with Danny at the Museum of Modern Art and then at 11 Madison Park, which I ended up buying from him a few years later. We, uh, as a matter of context, several years ago, we had, God, I don't know, was some kind of marketing or branding agency coming to help us create a more pithy, kind of succinct <laughs> a version of what, you know, service means. That was our culture and everything. But it was, it was hard for people to put it into a, a brief thing. And we always used to mock people that had like these slogans because it wasn't backed up <laughs> with real actions. They were just words. But they yes. kept coming in and like had logos and slogans. And, and at a certain point after we've spent, I don't know, half a million bucks on you know, these guys' <laughs> services, I'm in a room and I said, well, isn't all we're trying to do is make people feel good? And they go, mm. that's it. That's right. They wrote it down. And that's what we ended up going with is make people feel good and look their best. That's, that's our thing. But it really, it struck me when you, and I want you to talk about the, the TED Talk and the theme about how you created a culture of service. But it's all about that, right? It's all about how to create a connection, make people feel good. No, for sure. By the way, you should have gotten the discount. I, yeah, I, I got nothing for that. It was good, though. I, I, some satisfaction, <laughs> I suppose. You're like, who's charging who right now, guys? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, you know, so like when we were we were coming up as a restaurant, so we had bought the restaurant. We were doing really well. Uh, we'd gotten four stars from the New York Times, three Michelin stars, and and to put that in context, when you say three Michelin stars, I mean, how many restaurants in the U.S. are three Michelin stars? I mean, a handful. No, I mean, to, to have four stars in the New York Times, I think there's five restaurants in New York City with four stars and three Michelin stars in America. Maybe there's twelve. Yeah, or I mean, 10 it's a big deal. Like <laughs> Historically, I mean, that's it. That's that's the highest accolade you can receive it's that's the closest you can get to being called perfect in the industry but excellence was never the destination for us right it, it like the accolades were always something to pursue and every time we got one we were looking for another to help galvanize our team around pursuing together and then one day we got invited we got this letter in the mail that said you've been added to the list of the 50 best restaurants in the world and I was fired up. That was the last accolade and we hadn't received it yet. And so we went to London for the awards ceremony. And it's like the Oscars, right? You go there, you get dressed up in a tuxedo. I love wearing a tuxedo. Um, you go to this big, beautiful cathedral. You're in a room with all of your heroes, all the other chefs and restaurateurs I'd grown up wanting to be like over the course of my career. Um, the difference between it and the Oscars is, you know, if you're on if you're in the room that you're on the list, but they start counting at 50 and go all the way down to, to one. So you don't want them to call your name for as long as possible. Because <laughs> um, if you're there, you know you're one of the top 50. You just don't know where on the list you fall until they start counting. And I like to gamify everything. And we had assigned seating. So I'm looking at where I'm seating relative to where the other people are sitting to try to figure out where on the list we're going to fall. And I'm sure there was some amount of preamble before they started. But the the big debonair British guy was like, and to kick things off at number 50, a new entry from New York City, 11 Madison Park. Oh, <laughs> I was like, gosh, darn it. Now, what, what I couldn't have realized, because we were the first restaurant called and it was our first year there, was they give you assigned seating, not to tell you where on the list you're going to be, but so that they can train a camera on you and project your image in front of the entire room. And so there I am looking like I've just gotten kicked in the groin in front of <laughs> like a room full of my heroes. They, they didn't tell you, hey, look, when they call your name, you got to like look like you're pretty excited about yeah, it. Yeah, everyone else knew that except for us. <laughs> um, we left the party early and we went back to the hotel and, and had a drink and like went through the stages of grief, you know, or angry. Who are these guys? We're one of the best restaurants in America. How are we last place? And ultimately landed on acceptance. Because here's the thing. It's patently absurd to say one restaurant is the best restaurant in the world. Yeah. But the list acknowledges is which restaurant is having the greatest impact on the world of restaurants. And at that point, I mean, we were serving unbelievably delicious food. We had as close to technically perfect service as possible. Our room was gorgeous, but we hadn't actually done anything to make any sort of impact. And when I looked at the other chefs that had topped the list before, they had, they'd changed the game with the food they were serving. They'd been unreasonable in looking at what needed to change on the plate. Um, my dad gave me this paperweight when I was a kid. I still have it on my desk. It says, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? He always encouraged me to answer the question honestly, saying that far few people are willing to for fear that if they say their most audacious goal out loud and don't achieve it, they'll let themselves and everyone around them down. But that if you don't have the confidence and conviction to say it out loud, you're never going to achieve it. Right. And so that night we wrote, we will be number one in the world on this cocktail napkin. But underneath it, I wrote the impact that I wanted to make. I felt like everyone who topped that list was unreasonable in pursuit of the food they were serving. They were relentless in pursuit of the product. 
and what needed to change about it. And I wanted to be just as unreasonable, but not in pursuit of what needed to change in pursuit of the one thing that never would, which is the human desire to feel seen, to feel cared for, to feel a sense of belonging and to feel welcome. I wanted to be unreasonable, not in pursuit of the product, but in pursuit of the way that we made people feel. And so I wrote Unreasonable Hospitality, and that became our call to arms. Okay, that all sounds great until you have to go into the workplace and find a way to galvanize people around. You know, I've learned to appreciate so much the, the benefits of focus and simplicity and clarity. So how did that work for you? I mean, you have this complicated business, you're serving food, I mean, all this stuff's going on. And yet you created, obviously, a level of focus that you got buy-in from your entire staff. Well, yeah, so you're right. It did all sound great until I realized I had no idea what unreasonable hospitality actually meant. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's okay, by the way. And this is not responding to you talking about the company that you hired to help you come up with that one-liner. But I feel like so many companies spend so much time trying to articulate their purpose that they never actually start pursuing it or living it. Right. Um, I think if you feel enough of a connection to an idea, just start pursuing it. It will reveal itself to you over time. And that was what the next year was, just trying to figure out what it looked like. And, you know, we we like delved heavily into how to earn more of a sense of informality with the people we were serving, recognizing that we were a four-star restaurant. We needed to start out on a foundation of formality, but the only way for us to genuinely connect with the people we were serving is if they let their guards down. And the best way to get them to let their guards down was for us to begin by letting ours down. We spent a lot of time interrogating the entire guest experience, looking at the least likely customer touch points that no one else had ever focused on to try to make them more engaging, more human. But then one day, it was like a year after those awards, I was in the dining room helping the servers on a busier than normal lunch service. And I found myself clearing appetizers from this table of four foodies who were on vacation in New York. And they were headed to the airport to go back home after their meal. And I overheard them talking about the meals they'd had. They were at like Le Bernadette and Danielle and Momofuku per se, now I love Madison Park. But then I heard one of them say, you know, the only thing we didn't have was a New York City hot dog. And it was like one of those light bulb moments in a cartoon. I ran back to the kitchen, ran outside to the hot dog cart outside of the restaurant, bought a hot dog, ran back into the kitchen. Then came the hard part, which was convincing the chef to serve it in our four-star <laughs> restaurant. So how did that go? I mean, you're like, hey, look, it's, you know, it's unreasonable <laughs> hospitality. Here we go. Here's the hot dog. I mean, <laughs> that probably took some explaining. Well, it did take some explaining, but we had this rule in our partnership where, and it was something we agreed you could never abuse. But if one person said to the other, this is important to me, that was the end of the debate. And that rule was put in place such that in any like extraordinarily tense disagreements, which invariably happen when you have a partnership of two passionate people who are aligned on what you want to accomplish, but not always necessarily on how to get there. The it's important to me card was the end of the conversation. So I used it then. It was important enough to me to use one of my, one of my precious cards. It's funny you say that we had when um, my two brothers and I, Oh, gosh, a little over 20 years ago, we were brought together. Okay, we're going to lead the company. And and we operated as a team and everything. That was great. 
but we had a similar thing. We said there's the elephant bullet rule. Like you get the chance to fire the elephant bullet, meaning like, look, at this is important to me. You yes. know, it's not a vote. Even though there's were three of us, if this is so important to me it's, and it's more important to me than anyone else in the room, then that'll carry the day. And I don't know if that bullet ever got fired, but it got talked about a few times. <laughs> well, but it's a, it's an expression of trust that yeah, you're inviting right. people to be able to do it if something is that important. Yeah. It shows that the partnership is more important than any individual decision. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you, you brought this hot dog in, you brought it to the chef, and now you're going to like doll it up and you're going to serve it to a customer. Yeah, so we cut it up into four pieces and we added a little like fancy swish of mustard and ketchup and a little sauerkraut and relish to each plate before their final savory course, which was a honey lavender glazed Muscovy duck that had been dry aged for two weeks. <laughs> a little juxtaposition I brought, there. <laughs> I brought over their dirty water hot dog and explained it. I said to make sure you don't go home with any culinary regrets a New York City hot dog. And my gosh, they freaked out. I mean, I'd served like Wagyu beef, butter poached lobster, caviar, foie gras. Over the course of my career, I'd never seen anyone react the way they did to that hot dog. And you know how athletes go to the tapes and they've had a bad game to see what they could have done better? Yep. But they don't often enough go to the tapes and they've had a good game to see what they did well to make sure they keep on doing that thing. And so I went back to the tapes on the hot dog, like what happens that it could happen and what needed to happen so that it could start happening all the time. And it was, it was three things. One, it was being present, which is way overused these days. But for me, being present just means caring so much about the person you're with. You stop thinking about everything else you need to do, which you can relate to this at work as well as in life. We get so busy that we don't often enough slow down for long enough to actually listen to the people around us, the things they're saying, the things they're not saying. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to interrupt your list because you're only one into the three. But the thing that strikes me that you talked about there is that, you know, we don't decide what good service looks like. The customers do. Right. And the only way that mm. you can scratch that itch for a customer is because you're engaged and you're listening, right? You're yes. like, what do you need today? And it's, it, we've had the hardest time, you know, cause we have 70,000 employees and trying to get everyone to do something, you know, not to follow a script, like I may help you. Cause that's no good. That feels canned, but to do something that feels authentic. It's like, you know, like, what are you trying to accomplish here today? It, it may be, look, at, I've only got five minutes. I got to pick up something for my wife. She has on hold or I'm just going to grab it. Or it might be, I've just lost 50 pounds. I'm going to my high school reunion on Friday. I don't have anything to wear. Or I mean, it, it's yeah. it's any number of things, but we have to ask, right? You have to engage to be able to do that. And and it's, you know, I think that's hard for people to be vulnerable or whatever it is to expose yourself to, to kind of lay it out there to say, you know, what is it that you need today from us? Well, yeah. And honestly, sometimes the thing that you need to hear they say after they answer the question you ask, when you're just with them, right? Like I, I, that's where I think so many people fall short is they ask the requisite question, they get the answer, and then whether physically or mentally, they move on and they're not present for what happens next, which is ordinarily where people give you the things you really need to personalize the experience. Yeah, you know, in my experience in restaurants is the thing that always gets me going. And I, I like going to restaurants and ask them about what they do, what they're excited about. And I'll say, oh, you know, I've never eaten here before. Like, what do you want me to know? And then, you know, you get the, the, the waiter or waitress says, well, everything's good. 
And you're like, <laughs> okay, well, that's not helpful. But then you can get someone that leans like, oh, okay, I'll tell you the kind of stuff that I like, but I'm also interested in knowing the kind of things you like. And then yes. that ends up being a great experience. But it takes someone willing to go there. Yeah, or where do you, like, it also takes people just being curious to learn more. Oh, so you've never been here before. Where do you normally like to eat? Right. And then you get a better sense of that person and what their experience is and how you can bring the what you're serving a little bit closer to what they know and understand. Yeah. You got to be present. You have to be curious as well. Yeah. So um, keep going. You had that list. I interrupted you after one. So I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's all good. The second thing, which, by the way, I, I already like get this sense. I've known this about the brand, but now it makes sense spending time with you is take what you do seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. And I think this is one of the biggest things that so many customer service businesses struggle with was they let these self-imposed standards get in the way of them giving the people around them the things that will actually bring them the most joy. Yeah. You know, like a hot dog in a four-star restaurant. I needed to use the, this is important to me card because it is an absurd proposition. It's, it's bordering on sacrilegious until you look at how it made them feel. Well, um, that's right. You're, what's the measurement here? What's the outcome we're looking for? And what you're saying is... Not to please a food critic necessarily, but it's to make whoever it is that's in front of you leave feeling great. Yeah. I mean, that's, I believe, and this is what you kind of alluded to before, that in restaurants and the the recipe is the same regardless of industry, just a couple of the ingredients change, but the food, the service, the design are ingredients and the recipe of human connection. I think that's what we're here to do. I think there's a sacredness to the table. It's one of the like few remaining places where people are inclined to put their phones down and lean in and connect with the people they love. And if I'm doing my job correctly, all the things I'm serving are just there to enhance that sense of connection. Yeah. And then the third thing, the third ingredient in, in, the, in the hot dog story was this acknowledgement that if hospitality is about making people feel seen, the best way to do that is to not treat them like a commodity, but a unique individual. That in genuine hospitality, one size fits one. So is that just another way of saying personalization? That's kind of the buzzword, you know, around our businesses. It's essentially what technology has enabled people to do is to know way more about their customers so you can create personalization at scale. Yes, for sure. It is. But, and by the way, I think technology is a beautiful thing to scale hospitality if it's used as a tool to help humans be more human as opposed to if it's used to replace humans. Yeah, that's good. I like that. But so, okay, the hot dog was our new true north. Now with these three things, we had a roadmap and I was super fired up. Like I started talking about it with the team all the time. I want you guys to go out into the dining room. I want you to be present. I want you to pick up on cues and I want you to start coming up with your own ideas. Like let's do more of this stuff because it's electric. And they got started right away, but it quickly it became clear to me that I was giving them permission to bring their own creativity to the table without giving them the resources to do it consistently, ah. which by the way, I see that happen all the time. You have a great idea, but if you don't back up a great idea with resources, it's nothing more than an idea. And so we added a position to the team whose only responsibility was to help everyone else on the team bring their ideas to life. Do you think in any way the unintended consequence of that was the people on your staff feel, well, that's not really my responsibility. It's this person who has that. So I'm going to do my thing, but that's not really my job to lean in and give amazing service and do something special. Well, no, because that person was a tool for them. That person was just off to the side 
waiting for instruction, waiting for the idea. So they weren't making up the idea. They were just there to execute it. No, the only person that could make up the idea is the person actually serving the people. Okay. That's good. You know, like there's this there's this quote by the retired naval captain, David Marquet, who says in most organizations, the people at the top have all of the authority and none of the information where the people on the front line have all the information and none of the authority. This whole idea was trying to basically level that and give authority to the people on the front line, those that were actually talking to the people we were serving and getting the information directly from them, and then giving them a resource to help them bring their ideas to life. You know, you talk about this deal with the hot dog story, essentially, is, is how this gets framed. And I don't know if you're familiar, at Nordstrom, we had this deal, and we actually have a whole podcast episode about it. It's called The Tire Story is True. So I don't know if you ever heard that deal where we return some tires for a customer. You know, we don't sell tires. And what no happened way. was that moment and that example created the foundation for the whole subject around people leaning in and doing their own thing. So it, most of our stores over the years, this kind of happened organically, like someone had nailed a tire up to the wall by the, punt, the time <laughs> clock, and it said, what's your tire story? Or make a tire story today. And so we unleashed all this kind of possibility and this imagination, which was powerful. And it reminds me, we, sh- we should double down on that. But it, talk about how you have your version of the tire story. It's the hot dog story and how that impacted the culture of service here at your restaurant. Yeah. So we ended up calling them legends and I'll explain why in a moment, but my gosh, the stuff the team did was just amazing. One night we found ourselves serving this couple who had this big family wedding planned. And then through a ton of family drama between the two different sides, they just canceled it and got married at city hall. And they were coming to dinner at our place to have their big celebratory dinner and the captain of the table got them to tell him what their wedding song was going to be. And that night our private dining room was empty. And so we put a ton of candles up in the private dining room and brought up champagne and everything. And for their last course, we brought them up there and played their song and gave them their first dance. Um, But it goes all the way to smaller things, right? Like, a uh, guest warned us in advance that his dad was more of a Budweiser steak and potatoes kind of guy than caviar and champagne. So the Dreamweavers turned our fancy champagne cart into a Budweiser cart with every type of bottled Bud we could find at every bodega in the area. Did he appreciate One that? One of my favorite. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? <laughs> like He goes, I'll, I'll take the Bud Light tall boy and I'll... I'll take the Bud Heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, a family of four from Spain was in the dining room with their kids. And the most beautiful thing happened. The kids were looking out the massive windows with wonder because it had started snowing and it was their first time seeing real snow. The Dreamweavers went out and somehow found a store still open selling sleds at eight o'clock on a Friday night. And when they left the restaurant that night, they were greeted by a chauffeur-driven SUV to take them to Central Park for the best nightcap in the world. Um, Or where the term legend came from, this started getting out there. Right. And so people would come in and they would try to challenge us a little bit to see what we would do. And so one guest who was like some investment banker or something, they're like, can we get you anything else? And he goes, yeah, but a million dollars to finish this round. I'm I'm trying to fund right now. (laughs) And the Dreamweavers went out to the store, got 10, 100 grand bars. And we just put them in a little bag and put them on the table. And we said, (laughs) I hope that does it. And he looked in the bag, started laughing hysterically. Um, And he said, that is legendary. And so was born the term legend. By the way, the Budweiser cart, the $2 hot dog, the 10 chocolate bars show 
that it's not the cost of the gesture that counts. You don't need a huge budget for this. Luxury is about giving more. Hospitality is about being more thoughtful. Like so many times people say, well, of course you could afford to do this. You're an expensive restaurant. I believe it's impossible to like convince yourself that you can afford not to do this because the smallest amount of energy not only builds your bottom line and makes the business more profitable, but it just feels really freaking good for everyone in the restaurant. It's a retention tool. It's a marketing tool. It's a profit raising tool. It's a, it's like a Swiss army knife in the most beautiful way. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I love that. That, I mean, it's just so incredible. The application of, of what you're talking about. It kind of brings me to my next subject. You're, you're talking about how really the U S economy is, evolved so much over the years that if people are saying, well, I guess that's interesting, but I'm not a restaurateur. So what's this mean to me? But I'd say this also to young people coming along trying to figure out what they want to do for a living. I said, you know, if you have some experience working for us selling shoes or something that is applicable to almost everything you're going to end up doing because you're serving customers and there is mm-hmm. a, almost every job around has some version of that. So maybe you could speak a little bit to how you thought about service really in the context of what's actually happening in the U.S. economy. Yeah, I mean, I want to say a few things. So yeah, first, okay, the U.S. was a manufacturing economy. Now we're a service economy where three quarters of our GDP is, is service industry. So statistically speaking, if you're listening to this, you do the same thing that we do. You're in the business of serving other people. And I believe that right now, especially right now, whether it's in our collective re-understanding of our need for connection following the pandemic or whether it's the digital transformation that continues to take place and those moments of genuine human connection being more celebrated and sought after than ever before. I believe we're on the verge of becoming a hospitality economy, that the businesses that put hospitality front and center are going to be the ones that separate themselves from the pack. I believe that any business can make the choice to be in the hospitality industry. Full stop. I don't think it's limited to any one sector. But like, so I answered the question initially, like using stats and data, right? I think yeah. that the, the way that I really like to answer it is you look at what's happening in the world right now, where so many companies are struggling to be fully staffed. So many organizations are struggling with workplace depletion and burnout. And everyone's trying to solve it by paying people a little bit more and giving them a little more time off. Yeah, that's right. And and by the way, those are two great things to do, but they're treating the symptoms, not the illness. The reason that those things are happening is because people are not energized by the work. And when you create a culture like the one I'm talking about, when you give your team the permission and the resources to bring their own creativity to the product they're serving, they're no longer just executing someone else's vision. You've taken salespeople and you've turned them into product designers. And I've never met a single person who won't give more of themselves and be more energized by the work than when they have a hand in defining the thing that they get to do. Not to mention the fact that there, in my view, is nothing more energizing than seeing the look of complete joy on someone else's face when they receive a gift you're responsible for giving them. I believe a culture of hospitality, whether you're in restaurants or whether you're selling shoes or whether you're in marketing or selling houses or insurance or in finance, is one of the most powerful ways to not only make people feel better and increase your bottom line, but also to create a culture where the team of people that you work with 
actually derives pleasure and energy from coming into work. Hey, I'm curious, when you got this thing going, did it not work for everyone? Because we say that occasionally here, like, this is what we do, and I know it's not for everybody. So were there some on your team that were uncomfortable with this responsibility and accountability they now had around leaning in and personalizing the experience? Yeah, although I found I just needed to get them addicted to it, because I do believe it's addictive. I believe that feeling I was talking about, where you see the look on someone's face and they receive a gift you gave them, I think it's an addictive feeling. And sometimes it was just about getting people to do it once so that they would want to do it again. There's something beautiful about extreme graciousness, where once you've had a taste of it, even if you think you're too cool for it at first, or if you don't feel like you're good at it, the moment you dip your toe in the water, you just want to jump all the way in. That's great. Um, so, Will, I'm, I'm interested in how your upbringing and your surroundings and all that informed this point of view that you have around the culture of service and what have you. I, I remember like my dad talking about, it's not that we train great people and stuff. It's like we hire nice people that already have this as part of their DNA. So I'm curious about mm-hmm. your experiences that brought you to this place. You know, when I was a kid, uh, my mom got pretty sick and ultimately became a quadriplegic and was that for most of my life. And my gosh, my dad, in addition to working, whatever, 12 to 14 hours a day, would wake up early, get her out of bed, get her showered, get her ready for her day, get home, do the whole thing in reverse and always still have time to be a good dad to me. On the receiving end, I got to experience firsthand how someone was capable of giving and serving so much more than they probably thought they were and got to bear witness to how even in one of the most difficult seasons of his life, he was energized by getting to aggressively love my mother and me. Isn't that amazing? Also a, Man, he wasn't, he wasn't victimized. He was energized. That's amazing. For sure. And, and by the way, the same was true for me because we had to be a team, right? Like my dad was in the restaurant business. So I was cooking dinner for my mom when I was, what, 12? And I never thought of myself as a victim. I got to experience firsthand how good it felt to be able to serve the woman who gave birth to me. And yeah, I think, again, it's it's what I said about getting people addicted. The moment that you feel that feeling the first time, you know, like there's people at the holidays who like to give gifts and there's people that like to get gifts. I believe both are just as selfish because there's nothing, there is no gift better for me than the look on someone's face when they open one of my gifts. And you immediately know whether you did a good job or not. And that is a high that I want as many times as I can possibly get. Yeah. And so you, you figured out a way to be involved in work in an industry that, that fills that need for you too, right? That, that fills that bucket. That's great. I mean, it's like when people talk about, oh, you got to find work that's your passion and everything. And it feels like you've figured out how work becomes a vehicle for this stuff that really transcends the work, but it's more about philosophy of life, right? You know, here's another one, actually, my, we used to go to the grocery store, my dad and I, and one of the women there always had like these long nails that were like, clearly they had all these crazy designs on her nails. And my dad's like a, you know, pretty conservative guy and his aesthetics. 
And when I was a little kid, I remember we were on our way out and he said to the woman, I really, I really like your nails. It's a, <laughs> a deep voice. And we got outside. I'm like, dad, do you actually like her nails? I'm surprised by that. And he goes, well, no, but I could tell she spent a lot of time on them. I could tell that she cared about them and I wanted to acknowledge them. And like, when I talk about hospitality being about making people feel seen, he was always so good at that. Like picking the thing that people clearly cared about and acknowledging it because you know, that feeling when you've invested time into something and someone else just, they they don't even need to compliment it. They just need to acknowledge it and how emboldened you feel for that acknowledgement. I learned that from him as well. That's great. Gosh, there's so much good stuff here, Will. I mean, and selfishly for me, it just kind of remotivates and inspires this concept about service and how it can be something that everyone can engage and participate in. You know, we're a big company and sometimes that stuff gets lost a little bit. So I just want to tell you, thank you for re-inspiring me. I can't remember who sent me this original, you know, clip of you doing this TED Talk, but... um, Look at, I mean, it, it, well, you know what I got to do? It's great. I, I got to send you because I did the TED talk around my book coming out, which yep. is called Unreasonable Hospital. I want to send you a copy. Well, I'll, um, I'd be happy to receive it. Thank you. All right. Will, thanks so much for taking the time this morning. That was really inspiring your message. And I think people are going to love it. Thanks so much for being on the Nordy Pod. Thanks for having me. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcasts where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you received great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail. And you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordypod. Also, be sure to follow us on our Instagram page at the Nordy Pod to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. And make sure to tune in next time to hear part two of Creating a Culture of Service. Sam Walton, first of all, was the toughest negotiator, the toughest on his executives, but he believed in the front line. And you know how we reversed the pyramid? Yeah. Sam did that as well. And Sam said servant leadership is what it's all about. And he told me on his deathbed, Sam was dying on a gurney. He would die 12 hours later. The last thing he told me was, Jim, he said, never be bigger than the front line. If you do, your business and your personal legacy will be destroyed. And from that day on, it changed the way I would lead organizations. In part one, we heard an incredible and unique perspective on service from outside the four walls of Nordstrom. For part two, we're taking a look inward. Listen as I talk with one of our own employees, a board member, and a customer whose experience exemplifies our efforts in creating a culture of service. Next time on The Nordy Pod.